Today on Focal Point, author and Bible teacher Mike Fabares addresses a topic that's become increasingly popular in recent days, Christian mysticism. What is it, and is it something we should pursue? We'll settle in for a fascinating edition of Ask Pastor Mike. We're glad to have you with us today on Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Today, we'll hear Pastor Mike Fabares address an intriguing question from our listening family on the subjects of Christian mysticism and spiritual formation. If you'd like to pose a question of your own, we invite you to do so at focalpointradio.org. Pastor Mike is the senior pastor at Compass Bible Church in Southern California, and we're joining him and Executive Director Jay Wharton inside the pastor study. Jay? Thank you, Dave. Pastor Mike, we've received a question from a listener about Christian mysticism, asking, what is it all about? Perhaps you could start by defining exactly what Christian mysticism is. Well, I wish anyone could define exactly what Christian mysticism is. That's that's a problem. Uh, mysticism is defined by so many different people in so many different ways. I mean, if you want to go back to the etymology or the word and what it means, it comes from the word uh, mysterion in Greek, mystery. Uh, you know, a mystic believes in some kind of mysterious encounter either with a kind of uh, secondary level of knowledge, and usually it's a secondary level of experience that people are trying to say is really the encounter we're looking for uh, with God. I mean, it has so many different forms, and almost every religious system has a mystical element within it. I mean, you have mystical Judaism and mystical Buddhism, and there's all kinds of subcategories where people are looking for some kind of uh, secondary experience. And by that, even that, some would define mysticism as different than an experience, and yet a lot of the encounters that we have with people that have this uh, mystical bent to their Christianity or quote some Christian mystic as they would call them, uh, they're looking for a kind of uh, encounter, some existential, some kind of uh, experiential encounter. And if you want to get to the basis of that, we're looking oftentimes for a feeling in our encounter with God, whether it's in prayer or whatever it might be. And so it's very important that we just know what a huge category it is when someone brings up mysticism or Christian mysticism. It's 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 a broad category, and there's a lot of different people using that phrase that mean a lot of different things. Why do you think people are drawn towards mysticism? Well, I do think it's uh, much like the Gnostics, the second and third century of you know, our Christian era here since Christ, it has been a great thing to feel like you're special and in a second tiered kind of level of knowledge or experience and, and other people don't have it. The normal person, the non-initiate doesn't have this experience and I'm a part of the club. I've got special access and some kind of uh, encounter that the other people don't have. Uh, when I preach and kind of the practical ways I talk about it is, you know, some people feel like there's a, a second tier or varsity kind of Christianity. And when you're talking to someone who's into the existential experience, they're looking at that experience as the thing that makes them a professional Christian, a pro, varsity. I, I'm in with God in a way that other people aren't. And what they'll say is you can be a Christian and not have this kind of experience, but you know, there's this goal that you should have to drive your Christian life into a deeper place of some kind of union with God that makes your you know, feelings, often it comes 
down to that, uh, feel something you didn't feel before. And they'll often, you know, they'll, they'll downplay the, the rationalistic approach of just knowing the right things and even trusting in the right things or the right people. You know, my trust is in Christ. I, I sense the comfort of the spirit, all those things. But, you know, you need something more. You need to go to the next level. You need to have these deep and, and very uh, profound, uh, moving experiences with God. So how does that differ from what the Bible says on how we encounter God? Well, of course, Christian mysticism often wants to say that is what God is shooting for in all people's lives. But what's interesting is they'll point to experiences in the Bible that were very rare. You know, the kinds of encounters that you see Isaiah having in Isaiah 6 or Paul on the road uh, to Damascus. And, and these are very unique situations and certainly not the common experience of people even in the Bible. So I don't think it is what we should expect. And I think we need to be very careful when our emotions start to be uh, the arbiter of what is good in, in our Christian life. You know, I, I think of the way that Paul addressed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, when they had really kind of gotten on their high horse spiritually and felt like they were the ones that had this kind of varsity Christianity going on. And he has to write to them and say, it wasn't like the word of God just came to you or came from you or it's only reached you. He says, if you guys think you're spiritual and you think you're prophets, well, then you ought to recognize, here's Paul writing scripture, of course, saying that, that I am spiritual and I have the spirit and I'm telling you what you should and should not do. In other words, he's writing scripture to them and that scripture needs to be understood, processed in their minds and applied in their lives. And that is something he's saying brings the person who claims Christ in line with God's will. And it's not just having a sense that my experiences or my encounter with the presence of God kind of trumps your quoting of what Paul said in this case that you should or should not do. In other words, Scripture speaks clearly and plainly. God is a good teacher, and he speaks to all Christians in the Word of God. He has spoken, and that becomes the rule of life and Christian belief. And that would trump anybody who comes on the scene and says, well, I've had an experience. There's people that are often claiming we can disregard the clear teaching of the Bible because they have some other source of authority. And often in mysticism of one type or another, it's the experience that I have, the feelings that I have, the move inside my heart that I have. You can blame a lot of that on God, but when it comes down to it, God has spoken very clearly, objectively in the Bible, and that needs to be the thing that trumps any feeling I might have. Pastor Mike, we hear a lot today about spiritual formation, and this sounds very similar to that, this Christian mysticism. Is well, it? Are they related? It, it can be, yes. And, and spiritual formation, you know, I was talking not long ago with a school that is certainly concerned about doing things biblically, and yet they have the spiritual formation department, and they know that many schools, many Christian institutions of higher learning have kind of gone down a road with this that it looks a lot like the mystics of church history that were looking for an encounter beyond the propositions of God's word. And so they're trying to differentiate themselves by saying, well, we may have the title of spiritual formation, but we're not teaching those things. And so I was heartened by that. These are very important people uh, in the administration of this Christian school. And so I, I was heartened by that, but I recognize that a lot of people see spiritual formation as code, if you will, for this kind of uh, medieval mysticism or maybe some of the monastic desert fathers or even Catholic mystics that have written extensively on these things. So that may be too much detail, Jay, but the point is everyone wants to be spiritually formed into the image of Christ. And if you just use those words with biblical definitions, okay, no problem. I want to be continually 
growing into the image of Christ. I want to be spiritually mature. All of that's great. But we've got to be careful when the Word of God takes a second place to my feelings and my impressions. Feelings, they can come. Sometimes my feelings connect with all that truth, and I I feel things, and other times they don't. But uh, the Word of God is going to stand at the end of time as true, and a lot of my feelings are going to be, you know, they're very unreliable. Shown to be wrong. They're going to be shown to be wrong, absolutely (laughs) many of them. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. These ideas are popular in some Christian circles, so I think it's important for us to understand what they are. We're going to finish our discussion today with a message you gave called Knowing the Real God and the Real Gospel. Part of the reputation of a church is based on its doctrinal statement. That's probably how you look for a church, right? When you came here, went to whatever last church you were at, you look at the doctrinal statement, and that really builds a lot of the reputation of the church. Oh, look at this church. Look, they believe in the essentials of the faith. They have a right view of Christ, and they view the scriptures properly. And that often builds the reputation. But if the church does not practically value a certain set of things that reflect their doctrine, that grow from their doctrinal statement, they may have the reputation of being alive, but they may be, in fact, dead as they've drifted away from the principles on which they were founded. If we're going to be a biblical church, we need to have the Bible as the center, that the preacher's being used by the Bible to get its message out to the people. That's the kind of preaching we're committed to. Now, the things we're going to talk about, the two most important things we're going to talk about as as a biblical church with biblical preaching is who is God and how do we get saved? We need to rightly understand him and how do we get right with that God to know what we've received from God in his word, keep it, and make sure that we don't deviate. And if there's any deviation, if there's any kind of slide away from it, we're quick to repent because we don't want God at any point in the history of our church to say, I'm going to come to you like a thief And you won't know when it is, but I'm going to come against you. So to help us with this, I want to inject a word that's found here in Jude, verses 3 and 4, the little one-chapter book. But the word that is so important in this text is the word contend, to fight. And basically, he's calling people, peace-loving people like us, in a very politically correct culture, to be ready to fight for the things that were once for all delivered to the people of God. Take a look at it in context. Verse number three, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I would like to have gone on about a whole lot of things, but I'm going to get very defensive here about a need that you guys have. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to, there's our word, circle it, contend, to fight, to get into it with people for the faith. Really? That's what he wants us to do? Yeah. It, it, you know, we're not talking about throwing blows on the patio and, and, and you know, wrestling by the donut table, right? This is a kind of mental intellectual fight that we're going to have to go through. Because God has, last phrase in verse 3, he has once for all delivered this body of information to the saints. This is not uh, uh, fighting and contending for faith. It's fighting and contending for the faith, the corpus of information, the body of truth that's been delivered to us, and it's been once for all delivered. We can't change it, as we read in our annual Bible reading this week, Galatians chapter 1. If anybody wants to tweak certain things as it relates to the gospel, we're supposed to say you're anathema. I don't care if it's Michael the archangel. doesn't matter. God delivers. We stick to it. We don't deviate. And so we got to fight. We've got to be willing to fight. And we need to fight, unfortunately, within the walls of our own church because verse number four says, certain people, just like then, so it is now, have crept in unnoticed. Surreptitiously, secretly, they are sneaky. They don't look like enemies. They don't look like bad guys, but they're here. They're in our midst, and we didn't even notice they were here. 
He says, and these are the bad guys. They are these people that are twisting and contorting, and he describes them in the last three phrases here in, in, in verse 4. They are, number one, ungodly people. Let me help you with that before we ever start to think about what that means. Ungodly. We think of the word godly, being uh, righteous, virtuous, doing the right thing. Ungodly, that means they're not really virtuous, doing the right thing. Well, that's true. But the real essence of that word doesn't have to do with conduct. It has to do with the disposition in their own thinking. The word is literally, it's got a negation in front of it, and then the word is reverent. Someone who has a reverence and an awe for God. They are irreverent. They are not in awe of God. They don't have that lofty view of God. And as is always the case, when your view of God suffers, the gospel suffers. And the next line, these are the people who pervert the grace of our God, which is the essence and centerpiece of the gospel. And they turn it into something else. In this case, it's, the, it's translated in the ESV, sensuality. This desire to do what I want. It's not just sexual immorality. It's all kinds of license to kind of live my own life. I got Jesus. He kind of merged into my life. And I'm living my life. And it's great. And, you know, he doesn't really harsh out my fun. And I kind of get to do what I want. And, you know, self-denial. Well, we're not into that anymore. It's all about a kind of perverted gospel. It doesn't redirect. doesn't change. doesn't transform. It doesn't bring people to real repentance. It's a bunch of talk about those things. But it allows me to live the way I want to live. And when that happens, we can be sure that we're not viewing God properly. In this case, he focuses in on the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And he says, these are the people that deny our only despotes. We get the word, I say that word in Greek because we know that word in English, the despot. That sounds like a negative word in our language, but it just means one who has complete, absolute, authoritative control. They deny the complete, absolute, and authoritative control and the lordship, the curiosity, the, the, the leadership of Jesus Christ. They see Christ as something other than what he is. And because he is the exact representation of the nature of God, Hebrews chapter 1, if that's how you view Christ, certainly that's how you view God. It is from this concern, which if you start looking for it in the Bible, you'll see the combination everywhere. We've got to work at keeping a high view of God because if we don't, both as partly cause and partly effect, we're going to have a messed up gospel. Those two things go together. Verse number three says, I'm eager to write to you about other stuff, but I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. And then he says, the problem is people have crept in unnoticed. If Satan wants to get a church off track, what he's going to do is he's going to try and bring in some bait for the, for the church, some some things that are not bald-faced lies, not you know, anti-truth, but truth that's kind of a composite of truth and something else and draw them away. Because even Satan himself is not trying to introduce to you something blatantly different than what you believe and think. What he is trying to do is masquerade as someone who's on your team and for you. I'm masquerading as an angel of light and he wants to draw you off and his messengers are like that. They're held captive in the church to do the will of the enemy and get us to just kind of mess the truth up just a little bit. It is a battle that we need to watch out for. Number one in your outline, I put it this way. It's not these bald-faced lies that are the most insidious and dangerous. It's the half-truths. You and I, we need to fight to dispel half-truths because they're everywhere. And they are the things that moves a church from being alive to being dead, from being healthy to being sick, to having God's support and favor, to having Christ oppose them. It is about keeping our doctrine pure, and there's no more important doctrine than the doctrine of revering God as God and seeing Christ as master and Lord. That's, I mean, that's just the bottom line. 
That's putting God in his rightful place. Verse five, we destroy arguments. There's our battlefield. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And what we're, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Anything that raises itself up to challenge the biblical knowledge of God, we reject it. We say we're not going to have that. Can we do that nicely? Sure. If you're not going to be belligerent, fine. We can nicely talk this over. But we cannot settle for an unbiblical view of God or an unbiblical view of the gospel. We've got to be ready to fight. And by that, I guess I can say that as strongly as the Bible says it, even though that kind of grates against our politically correct atmosphere. That picture of the kumbaya 21st century Christianity where we all just get, can't we all just get along? When it comes to doctrine, there are some things we just can't get along. Until you're ready to submit your mind to the authority of God's word and have God be who he is and have the gospel be exactly what it is in scripture, we really got to break fellowship. We can't have it. Does that mean we're going to agree on every little nuance of theology? Absolutely not. We can't. But it does mean that we're going to be tenacious and ruthless about what the Bible says, not willing to jettison any part of it because it doesn't feel right, it doesn't seem right, it doesn't sit well with me. And I'll tell you why. Matthew 7. Jesus preaching into the Sermon on the Mount. He's bringing this you know, into a landing here and, and he just saves some of the scariest statements for the end of the sermon. Verse 23 is the one I'm thinking of, but just to get context, look at it in verse 21. You want to talk about composites of mostly truth and some error? Here it is. Guys coming on judgment day with the right nomenclature about God. They're going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You're kidding me. Really? No. You have to be the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That means, and this is not works righteousness, this is not earning your salvation. This is when God gives his word, we don't reject it. We don't reject parts of it. We don't say, well, you know, that seems a little over the top, seems a little zealous, seems a little hardline. No, my view of God would be much nicer and simpler, more genteel. He'd be a little bit more like my great-grandfather. We, we can't do that. We have to accept it all, the will of God, what God has said, what God has revealed. We're willing to accept it and embrace it and to live our lives accordingly. Unfortunately, many on that day will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and though they've got a resume that looks very pro-Christian, they prophesied in his name, they preached out in his name, they cast out demons in his name, they did things, amazing things in his name, they, they did mighty works in his name, they're claiming all kinds of support for Christ. Then I will declare, scariest verse in the Bible, for me at least, as a pastor who cares about people getting right with God, these people think they're in with God. They wake up on the other side and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's an important word. You've cast off the rules. You've taken what I've said and in some way you've defined your way around it. You've made excuses for not seeing it for what it was. You didn't seem to care about what I delivered to you as truth. The faith, once for all delivered to the saints has to be tenaciously, doggedly guarded against half-truths. Because passages like this should remind us that Jesus, when he speaks about being right and wrong, which is not as complicated as you may think, he says, you'd better be right come judgment day. Because there's a lot of people that will think they're in and they're not. Does that scare you? That should scare I'm not, I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to read Christ's words and say, what do they do to you? That's what they do to me. We're all going to cross the threshold from this life into the next.
I just wonder how many of us will hear from him, hey, welcome, enter into the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And how many of you will hear, depart from me? I never knew you. That ought to be something that gives us pause and drives us back to say, well, am I sure about this whole thing? Do I know? I'm not going on what I was raised on. I'm not I'm relying on someone's sermon. I'm not you know, reciting something from a track. I'm really digging into the word. I really understand what God says about himself, and I'm not rejecting any part of it. God is the creator. God is holy. God is just. The gospel starts there. God is creator. He's in charge. He is holy. He's perfect and demands perfection. He's just. He must punish every sin, or he's not just. And if he's not just, he's not good. And if he's not good, he's not God. But the appeal to the gospel is not God loves you and wants to give you a lot of wonderful things. That is not the biblical gospel. That's like taking things, putting them on the table, finding things I want, and rearranging them to give me a whole different impression of the gospel than the biblical gospel, which starts with the problem that I have before a holy God. Don't tell me about salvation until you tell me about what I need to be saved from. Don't talk to me about the freedom of love and forgiveness until I understand the condemnation and guilt of my sin. We have to start there. And people who start there, a lot of people say, oh, he's a fiery hellfire and brimstone preacher. Oh, praise the Lord, I guess, that he's out there on the streets doing that stuff. You do understand, we cannot preach the gospel that gives us an answer to the problem unless we define what the biblical problem is. Grace is not about helping us turbocharge our hopes and dreams. It is about God looking at people about to be zapped by his eternal judgment and stretching out his hand to save them as they do two things in the Bible, repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ, repentance and faith, turning and trusting. You can't say you're trusting in Christ because you believe a set of facts. Uh, James 2, 17. Even the demons believe, right? I mean, if you're talking about facts, it's not the point. It's about moving beyond the facts to believing and trusting in what Christ has done. A serious look at the facts from Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point. To hear this complete message, search for the title, Knowing the Real God and the Real Gospel, when you go to focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, I'd like to encourage you to ask your own questions for Pastor Mike. We always love hearing what's on your mind, and you just might hear Pastor Mike tackle your question on a future edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Again, go to focalpointradio.org and click on the Ask Pastor Mike tab and fill out a simple form to submit your questions. Well, every day on this program, it's our goal to explore the depths of Scripture. And if you believe in the value of quality Bible teaching, will you stay with us by giving a financial gift to support this ministry? We couldn't do what we do without the support of you and your fellow listeners. It takes a lot of people doing what they can to bring these messages to the nation and to the world. Here's the number to call and give, 888-320-5885, or go to focalpointradio.org. If you'd rather send your donation by mail, here's our address, Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
When you give, we'll express our thanks by sending you a book Pastor Mike highly recommends called The Pursuit of Excellence by George Sweeting. In this book, Dr. Sweeting shares stories from faith heroes who held tightly to the truth and lived out their faith with excellence. You can request a copy when you donate today. Ask for The Pursuit of Excellence when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go to focalpointradio.org. And when you contact us, please consider joining our team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your regular support helps us plan for the future and make an even greater impact for Christ. So sign up today when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drury. Be sure to come back again next time right here on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.